Hey, everybody, it's John Willis. This is uh, the Deming Podcast. This is the first one, and I'm really happy to, my first guest uh, to be is my first podcast in this series, Ben, Ben Rockwood. And, and you know, Ben is a mentor to me in so many things, right? But but he's the one that really got me um, on board with the whole Deming thing. It was uh, one of the early DevOps days, and we did an open spaces on theory of constraints. And, and I had been geeking out on GoRat, right? Gene, in fact, Gene gave me this gift where he said, before you read the early draft of the Phoenix Project, you should read this book called The Goal. I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. You know, so I didn't know anything about industrial engineering or anything. And I loved The Goal so much. I Before I went back and read the Phoenix Project, I probably read four books from Goldratt. I was like, oh my God, this Goldratt guy's brilliant. And then we show up in Hysteria Constraints and, and, and Ben's like, John, 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 it all goes back to Deming. I'm like, no, no, he can't be. Goldratt's the smartest guy on the planet. And you're like, trust me, go read Deming. And then I spent the next year, you know, taking that quest from you. And and uh, yeah, no, I, I like understand. I'm not, I mean, Goldratt is fantastic still. I love everything he talks about, but but it, like it's just opened up and I've become this like super geek on Dr. Deming. So Ben, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, Ben Rockwood. I'm the director of site engineering over at Equinix at the moment. And yeah, I've been a student of of, of the field for a long time. You know, when I uh, was at Joyent, we started out in 2005 building, you know, the first cloud. And I built a world-class engineering team, I thought, and operations team. But I got to a point where I realized I didn't have any uh, benchmark, really, by which to determine if we had achieved uh, the goal that we were going for or, or not, like, you know, what, what is the mark and get really, really interested in trying to find benchmarks out there by which we could, we could judge our performance and determine sort of, you know, what was, what was best practice. And we thought we were exceeding the best practice. So we didn't know what that mark was. And so we went, you know, went studying and just tried to learn everything I could. One of the books that, that, that I, I found early on that was incredibly helpful to me. ITIL and Four Easy Steps by Gene Kim. And that sort of opened my eyes to uh, a whole world of, of organizations and, and thinking that I had really, frankly, written off completely. ITIL and AICPA and, and a number of other sort of organizations that had standards out there I just saw as terrible bureaucratic things. And suddenly I kind of embraced them and had an open mind and sort of slowly opened up uh, my eyes to, to a whole new, new world out there and eventually found my way into, into operations management and uh, the history of, of the quality movement and found a lot of great material there. And as I sort of spent time trying to, to grapple with it and, and make sense of it, people started uh, referring to, to Goldrat and, and the goal, which was great, but it all seemed rooted in, in a deeper history that a lot of us just didn't have access to or didn't even know was, was there. But you really get the sense with Goldrat that this is somebody who has sort of climbed a peak and, and achieved something great. And he is a genius. I don't think there's anything uh, more compelling out there than his logical thinking processes and just the way he thinks through a problem. But there's clearly a process behind it. And what, what was that process? So that research, you know, led me into, into operations management. And quickly, I found that Deming was this sort of gravitational force in the middle of the universe. And there were certainly inputs, you know, from, from Taylor and, and Schuhart, which, which I guess we'll get into in a little bit. But Deming was this, this, this monumental sort of mass in the middle of this universe that you just never could really avoid. And everything sort of came back to and through. And that really helped orient myself and, and begin to start to, to make it much more applicable. Since so many of the other things in the quality movement were pretty specific to yeah. different types of industries, right? How do you deal with manufacturing? How do you deal with 
uh, supply chain and things like that. But when you go back to Deming, you don't hear anything about, you know, how to speed things up in the paint shop or how to deal with this new assembly line or what do you do with automation, right? When you talk, when you, when you see Deming, it's all about leadership. It's all about fundamental principles. It's about taking a systematic approach to the way that you view things. And all these were, were, were ways of, of looking at the world and thinking that were incredibly timely for where we were at in you know, 2008, 2009, 2010 with early DevOps and got us, I think, out of, of trying to take things out of the quality movement, things like that, and try to take things out of an industrial context and put it into a, a modern knowledge worker context and just bridge that gap immediately, right? We just went straight to, to core principles and, and it aligned with a number of problems that we were having and, and helped us tie into the greater history of, of process improvement and, and, and scientific management. Yeah, no, it's, it's ironic, right, that most people would credit Deming, and I think rightfully so, for the, the, what they call the, the, Japan, the miracle in Japan, which mm-hmm. is mostly manufacturing. But in, in all fact, Deming, like his whole career, even leading up to where he went to Japan, had nothing to do with manufacturing. I mean, he... Every time he embarked like something like, you know, whether it was working in agriculture or, or the Census Bureau or, you know, just different things. He never really talked about specifics of like, you know, of, those, you know, your material economies or you know, manufacturing economies. Right. They were really more of a knowledge economy of I can apply this to anything. So you look at his career, he just took the template of the things he did. But most people think he's a guru for, for automobile manufacturing. But, but, but to your point, he, he really had a model that was just completely abstract from like whatever the flow was. Yeah. And it's a way of thinking that can be traced back to anything, right? Quality being this thing at the end of the line, right? You're building products that are poor quality. Your customers don't like them. They're breaking down. They're not working. And instead of taking an approach like many of his peers did, of, of, you know, looking at the, the assembly line and trying to, to improve the quality process, he just threw it away and said, like, what are you fundamentally trying to build? Like, what, what is the value you're actually trying to provide to the customer? Let's start there. And then let's look at the system that you've produced, both the company and the leadership, the workforce and the automation, all that stuff. Let's look at the, the whole system as to how you're actually achieving that. And I bet if we look at that, we'll find your problem with quality, mm-hmm. right? And let's take that approach rather than trying to manage outcomes. Just and it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was polarizing, right? Because some, some people on the other hand thought, yes, that's exactly what we need to do. We need to go back to core principles and sort this out. Other people were like, look, we just want you to solve our quality problem, not redesign our plant, not redesign our company. And what's funny is, is when you look at it that way, it feels a lot like the kind of pushback we got with DevOps in the early days, right? right? When they were just like, we just want to do the DevOps and automate all of the stuff, right? So how do you make my people more, more productive and suck less? Let's just do that, right? We're like, no, it doesn't work that way. You've got to look back at the culture that they exist in, the system that they exist in, and start from that and work out. And then you're probably going to identify a bunch of your problems, Right, which have nothing to do with you know with which tool you're using or or whatnot, right? So you know when I saw those sort of parallels, I gave me a real sense that everything that you, Gene, myself, everybody involved in the the, the DevOps movement early on, like I think we're onto something, right? I think we're going down the same path and seeing what you know ultimately turned into Lean and the kinds of troubles they had there. It was like, all right, we're we're in good company, right? This no, nothing here is new, and th- these are old problems applied to new technologies in a new era. 
Yeah, I was just reading, um, I'm reading a book by Nancy Mann. It's a really one of my favorite Deming books so far, right? And, and I know that there was a period from after Japan before sort of the, the Deming mania things that happened in the 80s where he was an expert witness. And I thought, okay, well, that's kind of interesting. The truth was he was actually applying uh, to a, a, a process called jurometrics. So he was using the same, I always thought like, okay, like that's a weird part of his career. He was an expert witness. But the truth of the matter is, you know, when I'm reading this book, it's like he was basically applying all those same methods to probabilities of jury and, you know, metrics around jury. Uh, and I thought that, you know, like that, like not his, his model is the same. The thing I thought was, you know, that I think one of the like landmarks, I would say there's, you know, just my view and I'm allowed to have my view, but the two best presentations ever given in DevOps, you know, and I've seen a lot of them are Andrew Clay Schaefer's, you know, his, there is no talent shortage, right? And then I think it's yours, the Lisa one. I think that anybody was willing to listen that you shocked the world. Like, you know, I mean, now it's easy to look back and say, okay, like, oh, of course, lean and all this stuff in the DevOps movement. But you you put it right in our face, right? And at the Lisa conference, I think in 2011, you basically said, hey, folks, there's a history here. You know, and you went all the way back to Shua. We'll talk about Shua in a minute and Toyota Ono and Deming. And, and it was so glaring, like at that point, how obvious that was. But I don't think anybody else was really you know, throwing that up on the board to say. Yeah, I think hopefully that was my, you know, if I've only made one contribution to <laughs> to the history of DevOps, like I'm glad for it to be that one. You know, to me, it all comes back to, 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 to core principles, right? And and sort of knowing your history and where you come from. Because once you do, then you empower, you empower people, right? We're not, we're not giving people fish, we're teaching them to fish. And I wanted it, people to be able to jump into this world and and be able to look at it in, in a much more holistic way sort of sense. And, and I think, you know, I accomplished that and the, the narrative thereafter changed. And I was really thankful for that. There's some parts of, of that story that, that people are more excited about than, than others, but it is, it is a really interesting history and one that we need to grapple with. I know that one, one outcome of that talk was a lot of people who were really frustrated that I tied back to, and even had a positive view of, of Taylor. Yeah. Taylor yeah, is. That's interesting. Yeah. A lot of people just wanted to say, no, it was broken and terrible. Like, yeah. no, yeah. It, it was a start. It was on. It was. It was. It was a necessary start, and one that we learned from very quickly and and grew out of. Thankfully, right? We're you know, scientific management is still I think the approach that we're using today. We've just learned to go about it in very different sort different. of ways. It was people like Shuhart, the Gilbreths, and and in, in particular Deming that really turned the tide. Right? It's not about a stopwatch and absolute efficiency that only gets you so much and things like Deming's red bead experiment and whatnot showed sort of the, the failure of that type of thinking he brought but, it back to its its core it was core necessary work. though right like i mean i'm the same way like i i look at a room that like reasonably educated on this like the, if, if i'm in an audience where everybody's going to get mad about it we're trying to defend frederick Winsor taylor right like you better be ready uh, as you found out but but i would say like in, in one vein like you know hey pull out your iphone pull out like i mean does taylor sloan model has made us you know pretty fat and happy but the second thing is i don't think without taylor you don't have ford in a sense and then without ford you don't have ono and toyota picking up the positive things not take and then defining their own against the negatives so like it's all like you're right like you can't it all ties together and and you can't separate it and and it's and it's 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 somewhat ignorant to try and say that there's this part of the history i like and this part of the history i don't that's right that's right Uh, it's, it's better to see it as, as an unbroken whole that that we sort of learned and evolved. And, you know, Sloan's a great example, right? Sloan was appropriate for his time. 
Totally. And as I think that, that Taylor was appropriate for his time, right? If you were a peace worker, piecemeal worker, and you got paid by each piece you made, if somebody said, I can teach you how to make twice as many things and you will make as twice as many dollars today when you go home to your family, I would have signed up for that. But to think that we still should apply those methods to a world in which we don't work in that, you know, how many widgets can you make in an hour, then it's just not appropriate anymore. So we let it go. Yeah. And, and Deming, again, some of the things I said, Deming would talked about how like there was a time when everybody bought everything from America. Right. So like it didn't really matter. And then like all that changed. Right. Which became this. I guess so. it's time to get into short. You know, one of the things that you know, so I'm like, OK, Ben, why do I have to read about this Deming character? And you're like, John, you know, like almost like Kung Fu seek out system of profound knowledge. It will open up. And I did. And I struggled with that topic because there's a, you know, it just there's a lot of it, it's a it's a very heady idea. And, it, it you know, I think like Deming is like the big Lebowski, like every time you watch it, there's like, oh, wow, that's even cooler than I thought it was. You know, I don't know. That's my experience of watching the big Lebowski like a thousand times. But yeah, the best. A big part of, of that profound knowledge is is variation. Right. And that lens and and. And I think that ties us back to Seward. And I know you're a big fan of, of that. Like, I'll let you describe your view of that and what makes you, what's your interest in like, and I'll just drop it, maybe system, system process control and, 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 and just the whole concept of thinking about variation in a statistical way. Yeah, yeah I mean, Schuhart really was... He, he was the, the Deming of, of his time in a sense. It's, it's interesting that if you look at Deming, of course, he almost never takes credit for anything, right? He always points back to, to, to Schuhart. And so I, I came to find him really as, as, as the greatest of all disciples of Schuhart. I don't think Schuhart was particularly well-spoken and he certainly didn't sort of have the passion opportunities to, to go out and do some of the things that Deming did that, that made him infamous. A greatest example there would be the PDCA, right? Plan, Do, Check, Act. Deming never called it that. Even though it's attributed to him, he called it uh, the Schuhart Cycle PDSA right. Study Act. And, and so you see all these places where, where it goes back. And certainly there are some, some areas when you read read Deming where he just sort of says like understanding of variation and then kind of moves on like he doesn't really ex elaborate but of course you know when you look at Deming's history the reason that he went to Japan was because he was an expert in statistical process control and in the early early half of the century that that was all the rage was was statistical process control and really fed into that idea of, of scientific management let's use data to understand what we're doing and, and what's happening and Schuhart came up with 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 that method he's the real father of statistical process control which which you know we we now it's so basic a concept that we we don't even acknowledge it as as a thing right of course right. you record the work that you do and then you look at that data and you look for trends but maybe the thing that that we we always have lost and that that Deming called particular attention to was there is always variation in a system and we have to to separate between common cause variation it's just going to happen, right? The temperature goes up and down over the course of the day. Nothing's wrong. This is just the way the world works. And, and special cause variation where something strange or unique has happened and we should take attention to that. And, and a lot of times now, especially in the world where we're surrounded by, you know, graphonographs everywhere. I mean, we got just dashboards like everywhere we go. You know, a lot of times we, we, we tend to want to just fall back on our, our human intuition, right? Look at the lines. And when you see something go spike, you, you kind of like investigate, but how can we be more disciplined about that and, and, and not freak out, right? And this is, holds the answer to how do you get out of the trap of firefighting? 
right? Is there a true special cause uh, variation that's occurring that indicates that there is a intense problem right now that needs to be resolved? Or is this systematic behavior that we just don't notice because it's highly infrequent or something like that? So it has a, a lot of utility today. Deming did a great job teaching it to, to, to the Japanese, along with a bunch of other principles that ultimately, I think, came to be so much more profound and important that it, it reduced the significance of statistical process control in general. I think you're right. I mean, I was, you know, I, I've been doing a lot of research on Deming, you know, more than usual. And, you know, and like just stumbled across like a lot of the COVID stuff is using this piece under the covers, right? And, you know, and, and like it's now just ground noise, right? One of the things I, I sort of, I, there's a couple areas I, I wanted to pick your brain on, but one is I think a lot of people under, misunderstand that sort of concept of special cause and common cause right there. They, they think, okay, just incident management, like get rid of the special cause and then everything should be common cause. And it, and it was you who prompted me again later on where you made this statement, like, I wish I could just take a year off and go work in a manufacturing plant. <laughs> really do. And I like, I didn't do that, but I did take a, you know, Coursera class on, on supply chain or particularly operations management. And it really opened up like what is really going on. It wasn't just, you know, bad anomalies, get rid of them. Everything else should be within the control limits. It was like bad anomalies are human behavior. So Deming's point of like, what I think it was like 94 and 6% or, you know, I mean, they all have variants, but like some high percentage is, you know, you know, like 6% is the human and 94% is the system. Mm-hmm. Basically what it was saying is the 6% is like, okay, yeah, it was a lightning strike or it was somebody got fired or the air conditioner broke. So now I'm getting really bad temperatures. But then the 94% is where I really get my value because now I can start looking at a non-randomness mm-hmm. in, and I can start thinking about variation as, as almost more, you know, I'm going in an area where like I'm going to have to pick your brain on my thoughts here, but like almost an economic model. A lot of people like think variation is all about reduction. Mm-hmm. Variation is more about like, what are the tolerance limits mm-hmm. and what's the economics of which I stay in there? And I find a lot of people, even really smart industry people who just explain special cause and common cause and this sort of, it's an anomaly or it's not. And, and I think they miss a whole body of work around operations research, operations management. Yeah, they did. And, and I think actually what's interesting is that sort of ties perfectly back into the system of profound knowledge and that it's not just about statistical process control. That's one element of it, but it has to be grounded in a couple of different elements. Otherwise you end up going back to almost a sort of a modern version of Taylorism where it's just management by numbers, right? They hit the numbers, they didn't hit the numbers, right? I mean, we're now surrounded by data and and managers want to use, you know, whether it's KPIs or whatever you want to call it, right? right? They want to take those numbers and not actually have to understand the business or what their people are doing or what, what the, how the system is functioning. They just want to see the numbers. And when the numbers are bad, we react, right? So you have managers doing the same thing that a lot of cases engineers are doing, right? When it, when it spikes, oh, that's bad. Let's go play whack-a-mole, put out the fire, Mm -hmm. right? And then just move on. So couching statistical process control, and there is variation. We need to understand variation, but it has these other sort of controlling aspects we have to consider in psychology of, of the people the fact that it's rooted in, in a system and that in order to do anything, we have to have uh, a theory of knowledge or epistemology, right? We need to have some way to, to, to determine what is true. And it's, it's not just implicit in 
in these numbers coming out of the system, but we need to be able to go on a, on a quest to find answers and have a, a, a determination that that is in fact truth. And we can, we can then therefore improve the system. And when you take all four of those together, you have something that's, that's balanced and powerful and can go and solve a whole lot of problems. But of course the challenge with that is that's, you know, a lifetime, if not multiple lifetimes, if you take all his mentors and whatnot, distilled into four bullet points that are really terse. And there's just so much there is that's the nature of wisdom, right? And you can reflect on it almost infinitely, but it's really complicated and challenging to sort of wrap your head around. Yeah. I mean, I, that was the thing when I finally got my first attempt at, in fact, to be honest with you, I, I even read, I, I guess I read New Economics. I read it recently and it made a lot of sense, but maybe I was more, more learned. But the first time I read it, you know, you said you should, you should look into some profound knowledge. And, you know, I read New Economics. And I didn't get it from the first read of that. And then, and then I found like, interesting enough, like one of the areas that have just, ex, you know, exploded under our radar, even more so than manufacturing is healthcare. And so mm -hmm. I found some incredible videos explaining system profound knowledge in healthcare, particularly theory of psychology, you know, about bias. And like, you can, you can have all the facts you want, but if somebody has this ingrained, you know, bias or like, you know, almost religion to them, if you're not addressing that, then like, hey, you idiot, look at this chart. Hey, look at this variation. Look at the systems, you know, or, you know, do experimentation. They're, they're going to be like, yeah, no, I'm pretty sure, you know, what I believe is correct. Right. And that, I think that was not only the Deming system of profound knowledge, you know, cover variation, system control, he covered, you know, systems thinking, right? Like that whole thing. Epistemology, which I just, I can get back to, I think there's an interesting story there. And then all that's great, right? And, but I think the true brilliance in war, I think he has the legal license or uh, the theoretical legal license to run, call profound was that psychology lens. Oh yeah. Because that's the thing that I think everybody leaves out, which is, like you can do all these things to make change and improvement, but if you're not thinking about the other person's point of view or empathy, you know, Jeff Sussner wrote that brilliant article years ago is DevOps is about empathy. Mm -hmm. or, you know, so This is something we found time and time again in, in DevOps is it, you can have all the tools, you can have all the techniques, you can have, you know, great people, but if, you, if you're not attentive to, to, to psychology, and in particular, we call it culture, Right. right. But culture has a couple of important elements to it. And fundamentally, it's sort of how people feel about it. Right. Whether it's in, in, in healthcare and why should you wash your hands? Right. And be thorough about it. Or how do we approach incidents that occur and, and interrupts? Right. Or, you know, what, what are we here to do? All that's got to be it's got to be driven home into, into people in a way that they'll actually do it. And, and at the end of the day, if we're not all behind it, it's just not going to stick. I think we've all seen organizations where we actually felt like, we were doing everything right. Things were strong. And then you see, say, somebody leaves the organization. All of a sudden, like, it feels like the culture changed. Wait a second. It's just one yeah. person left. Like, how could the culture change? Right. And all of a sudden you realize maybe, maybe the culture isn't as, as systematic as we'd like to think. Right. And it's, it's really, there's a couple of people are holding it up and, and you can only explain why that happens. If you look at the psychology of it, right. What are the trust relationships across the organization? Mm -hmm. How do people interact with each other? And what are the primary sort of motivations at work? Unless you address those things head on, you sort of miss the fundamental connective tissue that holds things together. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, after I learned a little more about theory of psychology, how it applied, let's, let's, so he, 
Deming would call it these lenses to understand complexity. I think, you know, one of the things about culture that like, it was like your, your sort of journey of how you learn is a lot of luck, right? Me and you have both worked for Adam Jacob, right? Like mm-hmm. the, it was just pervasive of the kind of person he was there. And like, you just saw it like drip, like a melting ice cream of how everybody behaved there. You couldn't mm-hmm. be a jerk there. In fact, I actually was a jerk at one point. You know, I did something really stupid in an email to somebody else. And Adam like called me up and said, John, we don't do that at Chef. Don't do it again. And it was like just heartwarming that, you know, anyway, I don't want to sort of over-rotate on that. But you, but no, that idea that was a great example where he was, he was a strong leader and a strong individual, but was interesting was when he wasn't in the room, right? Yeah. Like I remember when I was at chef, we actually had plenty of like hard meetings with each other when, when we would do something that, that wasn't chef like, right. We would beat ourselves up. Like we, you know, we haven't even maybe made the decision, but like we even started thinking that way or started mm-hmm. going that direction. We would work hard to pull it back because there was that strong sense. And he was, he was massively instrumental in making that happen, but it was deeply pervasive in the culture. And anytime we challenged that, it hurt people. Like it, it actually hurt us to be doing something that was against our culture. And that's, yeah. that's, that's psychology at its, at its best within an organization. Yeah. And to be able to see that too. I guess the other thing too is, you know, I've, I have this, and I don't know how far I want to go. We could just talk about the influence of Toyota. I know you're a big fan of Singo and of course, mm-hmm. and, and how, how they, and how they work. I, I do actually have some of these debates with people where they try to minimize Deming's impact on Toyota. I think I've compiled enough evidence that, that like, I can whack them all those those pretty well, but I guess I would say, what are your thoughts? A little bit about that, but probably more important would be why are you so interested in in Shingo? And I know Shingo is a mentor to Ono, and and we all know that what those two gentlemen, including TPS, did was like instrumental in changing commerce. You know. Yeah, I think the ch- the challenge for 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 Deming, and of course we didn't get anything until much later in life. But I mean, if if we assume that even he had written his books earlier in life, yeah. right, he was really about principles and sort of big ideas. And as you you said, his his books are not super helpful. In fact, it's it's remarkable the number of people or pretty high level people in the the lean movement. And if you ask them like, when was the last time you read Out of the Crisis or New Economics, you'll either hear not in a very long time or actually I've never read it. Right. And these are some of the, the like, right. they're the founding members of yeah. lean It's pretty remarkable, but it was all very high, high level. So we really needed Toyota as an implementation. What does it actually look like when you take the ideas and you, you put them into the implementation? Certainly Toyota didn't just turn around because of Deming. And so it's really interesting, you know, if we take that influence out, does Toyota be, still be Toyota? I don't think it does. It might've been somebody else, but I think there are two definite influences that sort of came together. One was the influence of Ford and, and, a, and a certain approach to the way that you, you build anything, but in this case, cars. And the other was, was Deming as a, as a focal lens that I think just really in, inspired them and provided a, a couple of hints in the right direction that were important, right? And that throwdown that if they can't turn it around, and I think it was three years, right? Was it three years or five? I think it was said five years. years and I did it five. in four. That was a general broadcast to the top 80% of the wealth of the Japan economy. Right. And, and they really took up that challenge. And, and I think what's interesting there is just that you almost have the sort of like CEO, CTO kind of relationship between Ono and Shingo. And, and I think that's one of the reasons it's super useful for us today is Ono on his own would have set down a lot of great 
theory methods and whatnot, but he had to have Shingo come along with the technology that actually enabled it. And you cannot separate the two. You know, if, if it weren't for the fact that they could do, you know, you know, turnovers of, of dye and whatnot, processes that would have, that, that were taking hours or days, right? If they couldn't be able to turn them over in a really quick period of time, you don't get uh, just in time right? You just don't have the ability to, to do sort of rapid change. So I think that that, that that gets a lot more grokkable to the sort of the real world that we've seen. We've all seen, you know, you know, great inspirational leaders come into an organization. They say a lot of great things, but at the end of the day, like, how do we turn that into, into reality? It's all great, right? It's when somebody also comes along, is inspired, understands that vision, and then can do the technical implementation behind it that you see those two wheels working together that just magic happens, right? Sometimes you see that in one individual, not very frequently, yeah. Yeah. but normally it's that kind of, you know, Jobs Wozniak, right? Does Apple happen if you take Woz out, right? No. Does it happen if you take Jobs out? No. It's the that pair coming together. Yeah. Yeah, I think like your point, Shingo sometimes, and not that who gets credit, like Shuhit doesn't. They always said that Deming, that Deming sort of, one of Deming's sort of great positives was he could explain Shuhit better than Shuhit, right? Yeah, but, um, definitely. But, the, but yeah, not that like anybody's counting, well, you know, why doesn't Shingo get as much credit as Ono? But I, I think you're, you know, I, you know, I think you're spot on about like, like those two together was sort of the, and I, I think what's funny too is, is I think who got more credit probably depends on who you're talking to, right? Yeah, like I, 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 a lot of the stuff, the greatest stuff that came out of Toyota and, and out of the lean movement around like, how do you manage a shop? How do you manage inventory? How do you do some of these, these fundamental things that enable ideas like just in time and whatnot? You only get that from, from Shingo. So I think, you know, if you're more sort of leaning to the manage managerial side, Ono's your guy and Shingo's just sort of, he was there. If you're on the other side and, and you were you, you you were more technically minded or you were on the shop floor, Shingo's the guy who had all your answers and Ono was just kind of his, you know, the 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 John to his Paul. Right. And there was this this other thing too, I think, which is I you know, I think one of my theories is that, you know, so certainly Deming came in guns of blazes in Japan, right? Like he had statistical process control, he had his theories about his, you know, he was a he was a humanist. He was a humanist. Like he like you, everything you read about him, he was a great human, right? Like, and he, like his principles came from how people should be treated and how workers should be treated. And, and like, you know, if you read like out of crisis, right? Like it just bleeds about what he thinks is, the, well, the red bead game is a great, like we don't have to get too detailed into it, but it's a great example of what, like what Deming thought was all wrong about how workers get treated, you know? And, but so, but I do think, so he came in with all the Deming stuff, which is very important, but I do think there was an, there was two other factors. One is uh, Toyota had this really great resolve about failure, right? The whole mm-hmm. company was yeah. built on broken looms and, you know, all that. And then I think the third thing, which is, I was talking to Doris Quinn, I'm going to have a podcast with her later on. She's an incredible story of a woman that spent the last two of Deming's life traveling with him, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I, I proposed this theory and she was like, hmm. And, and that is, you know, everybody talks about how Deming changed Japan. Well, Japan changed Deming. Yeah. I mean, he fell in love with that culture. He fell in love with the food. He fell in love with this intrinsically motivated sort of baseline. Like, it, like I think a lot of that sort of seeped into, by the time he gets to his last book, System Profound Knowledge, I think it's things he learned from Shuett, things he learned from, we'll talk about pragmatism maybe a little bit in a minute about epistemology, but but then I do think that, I think you don't have system profound knowledge without him absorbing the Japanese culture. 
I think that's probably true. In particular, if you look at some of the work out of the, you'll remember better than I do, the WPA program, the the the, the work training program. Um, yeah, that, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, we gotta get the books over there somewhere. Yeah, but if you think about that and the way that that was implemented, right, a really rigid set of of training to walk people through and how to do sort of process. But then you look at like the fourteen points of management, and there are things like no slogans. You're like, wait a second, World War II is where we like realize that slogans work, right? Like we made posters and propaganda and it like got everyone fired up. And you almost see this like reversal from some things that, that Deming himself was actually in, involved in, right? Were, were important. And so there was definitely some, some realizations that I think that did come from that culture. There's, there's certain impediments we have in Western, certainly American culture that we saw come out. One of, I think, the most illustrative examples was when the, the NUMI plant, when they came together and the U.S. teams were, were meeting with management from, from Toyota and they said, tell us about all your problems. And they said, we don't, we don't have any problems. Everything is great. Yeah, yeah. Right. And he, he yells back, no problem is problem. And it kind of perfectly shows this sort of like American pride, right? Like right, right. If, if, if we're doing things right, there's no problem. Everything's okay, right? We're perfect. It must be you. And that clearly just was not a problem in, in, in the Japanese culture. I mean, it's difficult to talk about this because I think all of us, probably people listening to this will gravitate towards like, there are some pretty terrible kind of practices in Japanese culture around work culture and where yeah, did it come yeah, from yeah. and all that. And so like, I don't want to pretend those aren't true. Let's be clear, right? Like we're not like, I, I think that the things you learned about intrinsic motivation and all that, it, it's a very sexist culture. I mean, again, I don't want to also get a bunch of Japanese people pissed at us, but like, we're not like saying that that culture is the perfect. Culture. But it, it definitely seems that he had a different sense that, that every person is capable of doing great things and that the real challenge of business is to get the hell out of their way. Yeah. You know, Deming would talk about some great examples of, of constancy of purpose and, and longevity, it, particularly when he talks about like the, the mis, misfunctions of management or the, you know, the faults of management or the, the deadly sins of management, where he points out that if you haven't been, you know, he's the example of a, a delivery man at a bakery. If you haven't had the experience of, of it being five in the morning, your truck breaks down, you can't get to your delivery and misses Smith isn't going to get her bread and how that's going to feel. You sort of have no business being the VP yelling at somebody, mm -hmm. right? Like you, sh you need to know like what the pressures are, what the experience is and, and what sorts of things can happen so that you can truly empathize with your workers and, and provide a system that supports them in a lot of ways. And that's just, we still don't think that way. We talk kind of nice and soft about engagement of management. We still don't do that today. People are in roles for two, three, four, maybe years. The idea of being in a company for, for, for a lifetime is, is, is certainly frowned upon. And it, and it means that, you know, we never can have that, that real connection across the business, right? It's, it is better when the VP of engineering was once an individual contributor and understands the pressures. And we've, we've sort of lost touch of that. And so it's, it's interesting when you look back, right, at these sorts of things. And here they're talking about it, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, right? These, these are not new problems, right? And that's, that's why I love the history of it all. These are absolutely not new problems. And we delude ourselves into thinking that we just realized that these were problems that we needed to address. Yeah. Well, I mean, that goes back to your presentation, which was, oh, of course, a lot of what we're talking about in DevOps is lean. Not all, but yeah. You know, I was used to say that Jody Moki, when he was a ticket master, right, he, they had this thing where they gave budget and you literally would, you, know, you, you got budget to go to shows and then you also work the gate too. So you got to see the customer experience. So like if the 
if the iPhone app wasn't working, you couldn't get it like you like, and you wanted to go and you had tickets for like a really good concert or you said gate. And, and yeah, I think that whole idea of like being able to understand is empathy. I guess, I mean, I, I was going to talk a little bit about pragmatism, but like, I think that, you know, that whole theory of knowledge, right. Comes from, I, I was enlightened that the, the Stewart actually recommended a book by C.I. Lewis, uh-huh. one of the original pragmatists to him. And then, then you can start seeing where he got all that epistemology or really plan D check act, all that stuff sort of like there is no certainty, right? It's like, it's it's about probability. The- but it's also within our control, right? And I think that the, 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 this is, there was a lot of grappling, right? That happened around, around you know, the middle of the last century with, you know, the, the implications of quantum and randomness yet coming mm-hmm. out of that modernist era where, Everything was about certainty, certainty, certainty. It's all mathematical certainty and that breaking down. Something that we still haven't, I think, yet come to to a balance on. We, we still, I don't think, balance sort of random deterministic sort of behavior. Oh, totally, yeah. No, I mean, that's, you know, Mark Burgess's In Search of Certainty, right? Like, that's sort of a brilliant book to, like, in your face of how a physicist, like, thinks where we're at. I guess uh, the one thing I would close with is, you know, you've, you know, you have run, you know, very complex, massive infrastructure, you, you know, you, you, you know, like your resume of the type of environments that reasonably high consequence in, in terms of consumer value, right? Like, you know, th- you know, when things go wrong on your dime, right? Like it's, it, it's like a lot of people don't get things to work, right? Like like joint where you're there and, and the places that you've run infrastructure at. I guess the, what I'd like to hear is why should somebody know about that. I mean, we went through a lot of Deming things, but if you had to close and like, you know, your experience, why you're such a geek and somebody who actually stuck around this long <laughs> in the podcast, uh, what would be Ben Rockwood's like, why, you know, I want to tell you why you probably should learn a little more about Deming. I'd probably go back to sort of what I started with and what started me on this journey is how do you know whether or not you're doing the right thing? How, how do you know if you're on the right path, right? If you're just within your local context, it's really hard to, to know. And so anything that can get us to step back and put things into context and particularly leveraging the knowledge of some of these people who spent a lifetime understanding this and putting it together is incredibly useful. Taking these things to get us not just sort of keeping up with trends, but get ahead of of the trends is 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 incredibly empowering. Our infrastructures are 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 complicated, and you know, just applying you know the latest fad method, right? We're going to do twelve factor apps or whatever. Like it's not enough. It's not enough. And I don't think that anybody provides a better starting point and more clarity than than Deming. And I think from from there you can jump off to a million different places, right. um, right. or you could just take it and, and go with your own. But if you understand that, you'll be able to look at the methods of, of almost anybody else across the 20th century and even now, I think, and sort of understand what they were going for. Like you see these patterns over and over and over replaying. And, and that's deeply empowering because then you hopefully will bring that lens into your organization to decisions that you're making or, or being made elsewhere in the organization and to look at them through that same lens and start to see where it's right, wrong, or where we, we should adjust. And, you know, understanding this history allows you to avoid a lot of pitfalls in the future. And hopefully that'll make for a happier team, a, a better uh, a better organization to work in that will delight customers and ultimately hopefully make the world a better place. Yeah. And I think that the, the one thing that I like, I mean, a lot of people debate like manufacturing economy versus knowledge economy, what really maps. And, and again, if, if you could have sort of like, to your point with like, John, go back and read Deming. If you really take the time to understand what he was talking about, 
it was a layer above both of those. It was just any way that you want to deliver business in any economy. And, you know, and it wasn't just like, well, Deming only works in, in a manufacturing economy. No, that's actually wrong. No, it's great, buddy. It's always, it's always just a blast to, to sort of have any conversation with you. Where, where would people want to sort of reach out to you on? If I'm sporadically on Twitter, my, my, my blog and website is cuddletech.com. And hopefully I'll be actually writing more there this, 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 this summer. I've been so, so in, in the weeds with all the excitement that we've had over at Equinix. And now I'm going to try and get back to, to some writing and, and hopefully we'll have a thriving conference scene here in the, in the future. Yeah. We'll, that'd be great we'll to actually going. get to meet everybody in person again. Right. that would be pretty fun. So. Yeah, I miss the days. Yeah, no kidding. All right, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you, John.